If you take your Bible, uh, please, and turn to the book of Malachi, we're going to be drawing some things from Malachi, some applications uh, that we started this last week. I know some of you are probably thinking, who haven't been here maybe for a week or so, what in the world are we doing in Malachi? I thought we were in Nehemiah. Well, we were, and we finished up in chapter 13, the end of the history of the Old Testament nation of of Israel, 400 years before the prophet John the Baptist would come on the scene. And um, it was fitting, since Malachi is the last prophet to prophesy before John the Baptist that we have been looking back. Some of you have been here long enough to remember that I did a, uh, a series. It was the first series that I did after coming to Heritage Baptist Church and did a series, a full series on Malachi. I've stolen the title of this mini-series from myself. How about that? Refiner's Fire, and that's what it's really all about. So we've been dealing with spiritual defection. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 10, the people made a covenant. It wasn't too long before in chapter 13, they violated the covenant of God. And uh, so uh, that's why we're in Malachi to kind of shore up before we get to the New Testament book of uh, 1 Timothy. And so with that, let me uh, begin with a time of prayer. You see the points on the uh, sermon outline, and we'll be addressing each one of these points for you to apply to your own life today, and perhaps to uh, the lives of those around you. Father, we praise you and thank you that we have been singing your word. We thank you that we've been reading your word. Now we enter into a time of preaching your word. Hopefully we've been praying your word back to you. And then at the end of our time today, we will see your word in the marvelous symbol of the Lord's Supper that you've given to us as an ordinance to do until you come back to gather us up. So Father, I pray for a spiritual insight and wisdom. Uh, I have my notes in front of me, Lord, but where I need to leave out or depart or whatever the case may be or even to bear down, I pray that you would give me wisdom to do that. I think as much as anything, maybe even more, I would pray for the hearts and the ears of the hearers. Lord, that includes me, but I pray that we would all hear the words of this application while Sometimes it may not directly affect us. Certainly there are applications that will spin out from us to our families and to those around us. So I pray that as a result of today, people would say, it's been good to be in the presence of the Lord and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just by way of introduction, I, I was thinking this last week and having recently preached through a, uh, a series in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, I, I thought to myself that Heritage Baptist Church reminds me a lot of the church at Thessalonica. 
at least you're more like the church there than you would be if I were to compare you with the church at Ephesus or Laodicea, and I'm grateful for that. The Apostle Paul, I'll take some words and just apply them to, to you as a body of believers. The Apostle Paul was mindful of three things, it says, as he began to speak to them. He was mindful of their work of faith. I'm grateful for your work of faith, for your labor of love, and for your steadfastness of hope and joy as you shared a minute ago about whiz kids. And I think of all of the people that are involved in various ministries, and maybe if it's not an official ministry that you're reaching out to people in your ABF group or your small group, and you're doing the Word of God. Paul also acknowledged their willingness to suffer as they spread the gospel. Now, we have been learning over the last three weeks, most of us, at least in our adult Bible fellowship groups, We've been learning because our staff, our elders, are convinced that we need to constantly be challenging, but not just challenging, training as much as we can our congregation to reach out beyond ourselves and to spread the gospel even when it's uncomfortable, even when it means suffering. Well, the church of Thessalonica, Paul said he was glad that they were willing to do that. I'm also glad about this, and, and this is the confidence that I have. I sometimes look back when I was younger. I, I don't know if you had told me I would be preaching in front of a, a congregation like this. I would have believed you. I know that I would have been quaking in my boots. I would have been afraid I would have been intimidated. But one of the things I've discovered in these last 17 years is that you really do, for the most part, we're not perfect in this, but for the most part, you really do accept God's message, not just my words, but God's message, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then finally, oh boy, I, you know, I look I do think about this. I, I guess when you get older, you do, or you should. Think about what it's going to be like when you finally get to the end. And, and what are you going to do? One of the things, like Paul said about the church at Thessalonica, one of the things that I think I will do about Heritage Baptist Church, I will say, indeed, they were, in a sense, my glory and my joy. So, Heritage, I, I think like a proud grandparent, and I am, but like a proud grandparent's, grandparent, I have bragging rights over you. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. Now, with all of that said, we have not arrived. I thought I would hear a hearty amen to that. I bragged on you so much, but we have not arrived any more than our grandchildren have arrived. Paul knew, and let's go back to Malachi, he knew that they would need, the people of God would need constant encouragement to, 
I was going to say remain in their current state. No, he doesn't want you to remain in your current state, no matter what that is. No matter if you're a babe in Christ or if you're a a, a mature individual in Christ and the Word of God dwells richly in you, Paul said this. He said, I recognize where you are. And I love this. I recognize that you are doing the things that you need to do. But he says this finally in the last chapter. Then, brothers, we ask and encourage you, urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and please God. Do I preach that consistently? Because the Apostle Paul did to the hearers back then. Just as you are doing that you do so more and more. And I really like the translation that says that you excel still more. So why did I start preaching out of Malachi when I first came? Why have I gone through Romans and First and Second Thessalonians and James and Peter and Leviticus? You remember that? And all of the rest of that to encourage you that no matter where you are, in your spiritual walk to excel still more in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter says it like this, and, and I was talking with someone just this last week. Again, no matter where you are, for this very reason, work diligently, make every effort, bust a gut, do what you can. Listen to... now. We believe in grace here. But when you've been saved by grace through faith alone, then you are freed up and you are spiritually equipped where you can make every effort to supplement supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue. It does no good if you've got faith in Jesus Christ, if you walk out of here and you are as mean as a snake to your spouse, or to your kids, or to your parents. So we want to add to our faith, not because we're working for our salvation, but because we are saved. We want to add virtue. And then guess what? We want to add to our virtue knowledge. And then guess what? To our knowledge self-control. All of this is balled up together. And then, guess what? To our self-control, steadfastness in all of that, knowing that when we fall, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We realize that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin, and we get back on track, don't we? To steadfastness, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection, and love. That's what God wants. Don't you wish that you could make this happen for someone that you love? I'm asking you, and I think probably someone popped into your mind when I said that. Don't you... Don't you hunger sometimes for that particular loved one that you could make this happen? Paul says, I I urge, 
I'm begging, I'm beseeching you to do this. But you and I know, or at least we ought to know, parent, grandparent, husband, wife, child, grandchild, I've said before that if I really thought that hitting a person between the eyes with a two-by-four would make this happen, I'd do it. But you and I cannot make this happen. What this means is that whoever that is, and that's why prayer is such a, a vital component to everything that we do, We cannot, you cannot, they cannot be forced into growing in Christ. It means that you and they and me, I must do this. They must make that decision on their own. You and I, and here's what I'm trying to get at, don't hear this sermon as being for that guy over here. You know, a lot of times people will say, they just walk out. Boy, that sermon was really good for, and then fill in the blank. Don't let it go over your head and hit the person behind you. Take it to heart, whatever really applies to you. Strive for peace with all men, and especially the holiness without which no one will see God. Be intentional. Let's look at the first point. Am I indifferent to God's plan for marriage? Haven't we already talked about that? Yes. But I know for a fact that not every marriage in this audience is perfect. Okay? So we need to not be indifferent for God's plan to marriage. And I want to read for you out of uh, chapter 2 beginning with verse 10, and we're going to read this portion and then just speak to it for a few brief minutes. Listen to this. This was happening in, in, in the days of uh, Malachi. Among the Jews, there was a particular thing going on. It may not fit every component of your own situation, but try to see the application that you can make out of this. Verse 10, chapter 2, "'Have we not all one Father?' Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Those are strong words. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You can show up for worship, in other words, but if you're not acting toward your spouse in the right way, he says, let them be cut off. Verse 13, this is a second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. We quoted a verse last week. Just jot down 1 Peter 3. Shades of 1 Peter 3. But you say, now this is interesting. 
nine times in this little book of four chapters. The people ask, how? They are so callous, so indifferent that they don't even see it. Please don't let that be you. Could it be me, Lord? Could, could I be the one profaning? Could I be weeping as I come in here and give an offering on the altar and yet there's somehow it's not getting through? You say, what? why does he... Why does he not? Because the Lord, this is verse 14, has the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. This was particularly toward the men, but it could be the women acting this way as well in our day. Please hear that. The wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though the, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? And we're going to be talking just a few minutes about God's plan for marriage. Here it is. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his, harmet, his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard your heart a second time in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Another version translates these words, God hates divorce. And this is perhaps the strongest statement on God's views of the marriage covenant and divorce. He hates it. Now, a little context. Apparently, the men of Israel, we don't know all of the reasons, but the men of Israel were divorcing their wives, their Jewish wives, in order to marry pagan wives. I don't know what prompted their actions. I hear a lot of reasons for divorce today. Could it be that it's almost beyond the pale that they could have been really wanting to worship the foreign gods of their new wives, but that's what they were doing? Did they marry for that reason, divorce and remarry? I, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe they just, like so often happens today, don't let this happen to you, students, please. Or to some of you, who are preparing to be married. They had lived with their wives and they just wanted to trade her in for a new model. It could have been that. But whatever it was, the Lord called it a perversion and an abomination. He called it profaning the sanctuary of God. So I can safely say this, that to say God hates divorce is not an overstatement. But somehow it was a surprise to them. Again, I don't know how they couldn't have seen it. I'm, I'm just calling it like it's in your outline, indifference. 
And what I said last week was when we begin to get calloused, and that comes from not in, having an intake of the Word of God, and that's going to take its toll. If you just don't read your Word ever, you don't pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal your Word to you, you're going to reach a place of callousness. You're going to be bored. You'll be bored with worship. You'll be bored with God, and you'll reach a place of indifference. Going through, and this is religious people who were, they were making sacrifices. You get that, don't you? And they were just going through the motions, and they were indifferent to the things of God. They were being faithless. They were breaking faith. They were dealing treacherously with each other. And here, let me just put it positively. That's a lot of negative. Let me put it positively. God urges us to make covenant keeping the fabric of our lives. That's everything, everything that grows out of the covenant that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being urged to make covenant-keeping the very fabric of our lives, not just an add-on, not just a religious thing that we do. Malachi 2, 7 and 8. Let's, let's look at that. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and his people should seek instructions. Do, do you see something right here? Now, this was back then. How do we apply it today? The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. People should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests back then, the Levites. But you have turned aside from the way you have caused many. He's speaking now to the priests. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts. Now, that was the the religious leaders back then. In the New Testament, we are told who are priests of God. We are. You're right. We are. We are a holy nation. We are a nation of priests before God. But there is also another application. In, In a healthy marriage and home, Because God has ordained roles, who is the priest of the home who should be giving instruction, but many times even in our churches has turned aside through whatever indifference, and it causes stumbling. Maybe not in your generation, but maybe in the next. Do you hear what I'm saying? What God is saying about this? Amos 8.11 says this, and I think there's a lot more than just from the pulpit. I think it has to do with all of us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine to the land. We don't have a famine of food in the land. I know prices have gone up. But there's, there's no famine in the land He says it, not a famine of bread, not a famine of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Please don't ever pat yourself on the back. Well, we get instruction from the Word every week, and you ought to be getting it day by day, and I'm just filling in the blanks. I'm just 
kind of giving you the culmination of what you've been learning in your own quiet time every day. And we worship together. We do it corporately, what you're doing every week. But in many lives today, throughout many churches, there is a famine for the hearing of the Word of God because it's just simply not being preached. But as we're talking about here, make sure that the famine for the hearing of the Word of God is not caused by the lack of receptivity on your part. And again, don't pat ourselves on the back. Well, we are a Bible-preaching church. We preach the Word of God. Yes, we do. But the real, the real key, and, and sometimes you might say that, I say that sometimes. What kind of church are you? Well, we're a Bible-teaching church. Yeah, we really are. I think a better statement would be we're a Bible-receiving church because we have a group of people that, by and large, they're adding to their faith virtue. Into their virtue, knowledge. And then you go all the way through that. Paul says it like this. Make sure that no one takes you captive. There's, we're talking about marriage now still. Indifference to the marriage covenant. This is so true. Is it going on in the world? Chances are most of, you, most of you will never get out of the continental United States. So I'll just narrow it. Is it happening in our nation? And even in a conservative, so-called biblically conservative state like Oklahoma, make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And if you're in the Word, then you're going to hear the words of Christ and this is what needs to happen. This is a favorite verse for many of you, several of you I know, you quote it a lot. We destroy those arguments, those philosophies that are out there. We destroy them. We may not go out and shoot and, 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 and do violence and things like that, which we do not do. But in our own minds, in our own hearts, in the hearts of our families, in the hearts of our marriages, we are destroying arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because of all of the things that are happening now, in our own statement of faith, Heritage's statement of faith. We had to come back several years ago because of the pressures that have come over the last 20, 30 years of a variety of kinds. Now, I've looked up some confessions like the Westminster Confession. Do they have a statement on marriage? Yes, they do in certain things right out of the Bible, but they don't go to the extent that we do because this is... This is a part of the culture in which we live. We felt that it was necessary to make this statement. Just follow me. This is on three slides. If you didn't know this, it's on. you can look it up on our website. Along with all of our statements of faith, we believe that God created mankind in His image as male and female. Do you believe that? Is it true? Why? 
because it's not according to vain deceit and empty philosophy. It's according to God's Word that God ordained marriage as a covenant commitment, fabric of life, between one man, one woman, and that union, a covenant with God for their joint lifetime. That this union is a, the foundation of the family, an essential structure for society. Is that under attack today? So at least priests be teaching the truth in your own home, in your own family, in your circle of influence. Somebody challenges that. I understand you have a worldview. Here's my worldview. Here's the source of authority. You may not agree with it, but here's what it says. That the husband is commanded to love his wife as Christ loves the church. The wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. That God hates the dissolution of marriage, divorce. That sexuality is designed by God to be expressed exclusively. This is a tight biblical definition between one man and one woman within the context of marriage and that all other expressions of sexuality and because every day there are being added new words, a whole new vocabulary has sprung up with the expression of this including but not limited to fornication, relations outside of marriage, adultery, relations inside of marriage but not with a marriage partner, homosexuality, polygamy, incest, bisexuality are sinful and are offensive to God. Now, here's the thing. Okay. Uh, most, if all of us, agree with that. 2,500 years ago, in the days of Malachi, that wouldn't have been in their statement of beliefs. They were essentially taking the seventh commandment about purity and were ripping it out of their Torah, if you could do that, and wadding it up and throwing it away. And shockingly, then the leaders were at the forefront of doing that. And you can see the excellent quote by Jay Adams, if marriage were of human origin, then human beings would have a right to set it aside. But it is not of human origin. It's of divine origin. Now, hear me, please. Most of the folks, I'm talking about the married folks, in this room are really trying to make your marriage work. You're trying to be for lack of a better word, you really want to be happy in your marriage. You do realize that there are marriages where the man and woman are not happy. We know godliness is the first go. We know that. But happiness is a worthwhile objective to be pleased, to be happy. I think that's one of the reasons, the mutual completion for which God created the marriage institution. You want your marriage to be God-honoring. 
You're not dealing treacherously. I know that with the wife of your youth. But there are those in every church that somewhere along the line, they just have decided this marriage thing is too much work. And they're just coasting. Or maybe their maybe they're, they're, they're spouse has become unlovable. Or like I said a minute ago about these guys, I don't know, but maybe they have just found someone that pleases them more, whether that's a man or a woman. And you get my drift on that. And what they do, I've had so many discussions with people in church through the years. And when, when I sit down and I'm talking about God's plan for marriage, if, if they have their mind made up and they're not open to hearing the Word of God, they just think it's my interpretation of it, they will find a loophole. They're going to find a way around, a workaround. And what's important to them is not so much God's glory. It becomes their happiness, which is going to be fulfilled in another way. And it's almost as if that personality that was in the garden has somehow jumped into their life and has repeated the phrase that he's used over and over again, has God really said? Point two, am I indifferent to the stewardship of God's provisions to me? Oh no, Pastor Marty's going to talk about giving again. Yeah, it, it just comes up. It came up in Nehemiah, it comes up in Malachi, and we're going to kind of extrapolate what the Lord means. Verse 6, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. This is one of the most encouraging verses in all of the Bible. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Because he's made a promise. He's made a covenant. That's why you're not consumed. From the days of your father, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... Here's another question, one of the nine, how shall we return? Then he answers, will a man rob God? Uh-oh, yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and put me to the test. Can you believe that God is saying, dare me? Says the Lord of hosts, I will not open, if I will not open the heaven, windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not uh, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a, line, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let, let's just walk through this real quickly. We've already talked a little bit about it, but as a reminder, look back at verse 6. Their giving was to be based, listen to this, this is a New Testament application. Their giving and our giving is based on the unchanging character of God. 
Verse 7, although they had disobeyed, God invited them to return. He always does. Verse 8, God wanted them to stop stealing from him by withholding their tithes and contributions. Now, whatever tithes and contributions were, the gist of this is that they belonged to God and not the people. That much we can deduce for ourselves. The people did not own anything. They were responsible, and let me give you a word, and you've heard this word, some of you who grew up in church all your life, what is that word? They were stewards of the gifts that God had given to them. Verse 9, what stealing was doing to their hearts, because it always, if you steal, if you're stealing particularly from God, he says you're cursed with a curse. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that looks like. I'm not going to do the boogeyman theology to get you to give your money. You, you know what that is, don't you? You better give your tithe, some preachers will say, or God will get it anyway. And then they'll tell a story of somebody who didn't give and their car broke down. Oh, and guess how much it took to fix it? Exactly the amount of your tithe. Oh, come on, please. So I'm not saying that's being cursed with a curse, but there is a sense which in, a lot of times it's the inner thing, cursed with a curse, and it, it was happening to them because they were robbing God. They assumed ownership when they couldn't, when they shouldn't have. Do you realize, and probably you've heard this before, Joseph, who served under Pharaoh. Now, do you guys know that story? Okay, end of Genesis, look at it. Joseph was second in command. But think of this. Joseph was not able to give a gift to Pharaoh unless he were to steal from Pharaoh because God already owned it anyway. Verse 10, this, this, this blows me away. I, I don't know what this means exactly, but it did for them. And I'm thinking if they're under the law, we're under grace. The law comes up to a certain point and grace just goes beyond it. So he dared them. He said, you trust me in this. You, you make sure, here's what he's saying. You make sure that you're not assuming ownership of something that is mine. And then trust me in this. And see if not, rather than a curse, you will receive a blessing. And then verses 11 and 12, I don't know what the devourer was. Whatever it was, if they disobeyed, the devourer would get whatever was theirs or whatever was God that they thought was theirs. And if they were faithful to recognize stewardship, God would rebuke that devourer. Now, in the New Testament, I... Personally, personally, I don't believe that the tithe was absolutely abolished. I, I hear this sometimes. If we're New Testament, we can't, we can't tithe. Again, why not come up to at least the Old Testament legal standard and then move beyond that with tithes 
and offerings. That seems to be what the New Testament is talking about. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Be careful of the seed money kind of teaching that is very popular today. But that goes back to Nehemiah. Cursed with a curse, blessed with a blessing. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion, because a preacher preaches a tithing sermon or preaches out of Malachi. For God loves a cheerful giver. And then, I, I think this is interesting. Ephesians 4.28, I wonder if Paul, when he was writing this, didn't have Malachi in mind. Quit stealing from God. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Number three, am I indifferent with my words? Let's just read this. A couple of comments on this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Of the three points, this will be the shortest and, to me, the most interesting. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You say, well, how? how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I know you have, so I, this is kind of a silly question. Have you ever grown tired in following the Lord and serving the Lord? Have you? Okay, you're, if you're asking me, here's my answer. Yep. Have you ever looked around and, and you feel like you're serving the Lord and you're you're trying your best, but things and people just don't cooperate like you feel like they should. You throw up your hands and say, what good is it anyway? God, everything I do is just, it's like it turns to dust. Do you ever feel like quitting? Do you ever feel like when you're giving your all for the Lord and then others who aren't even serving Him prosper materially? So here's what they did, and I want to just add this huge caution to us, church. They blamed and accused God. They didn't, they didn't, they were not giving themselves to God's plan in whatever He had for them. They had the audacity to accuse God, to say that serving Him just wasn't worth all the trouble. Now, I, I will say this, and we've talked about this before. Understand that there is an appropriate, listen, please listen, there is an appropriate way to question God. If you're questioning for more, you're, you're sharing with Him your, your, your problem, seeking more information so that you can grow in Him, that's one thing. And the psalmist did that. Now, this is out of the message. It is one of the, you can't believe that he said it, but he did. David said this, how long, O God, will barbarians blaspheme? 
You say, well, that was back then. No, it's now. Do the, do the barbarians blaspheme today? Who are the barbarians? Well, I thought I would hear Democrats or, or something like that. I, it's easy to categorize. It's easy to just, okay, let's lock it into this. But yes, the people who do not know God, I'm not saying all Democrats do, okay, please strike that from the video, okay? <laughs> but look at this. He's saying, will the bar barbarians blaspheme enemies curse and get by with it, God? Where are you? Why don't you do something? How long are you going to sit there with your hands folded in your lap? That sounds almost like what he's saying for us not to do out of the book of Malachi. But here's what David did in every one of those psalms where he was asking. He was asking. He would come back and affirm, yet God is my king. From old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He knew the God he served, even if he had some complaints along the way. This is totally different from modern teachers that we've seen who are at one time apparently orthodox, and they started prompting questions to make you doubt rather than to build your faith. So church, I think what he's saying here is just, just be humble. Just be humble. Tim McGraw, I'm not sure how much of a theologian he is. Does some pretty good songs. I love that song, Always Be Humble and Kind. It's a pretty good theology. Be humble enough to accept God's Word. What's the remedy for spiritual indifference? It's to look at your own heart, the good person out of the good treasure, a person who's saved, walking, growing in the Lord, is going to bring out that which is good. The evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you look to your heart first. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. You continue to grow, to excel even more and more. Whenever there's failure, what do you do? Repent. Plead the blood of Jesus. Submit to the refiner's fire who's doing a work, church, in us individually and also corporately. And this last thing and what we're going to do as we segue after a prayer is you cannot preach the gospel without the cross. You cannot preach the gospel without the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so uh, about once a month we try to do this. We try corporately to come together and we partake of the Lord's Supper. And you know what you're doing? You know what you're doing when you take this little bread? Now, children, you, you need to listen, and I know you're, maybe you're understanding has not come to where you want it to be. Maybe some adults. You drink this, this little cup of juice and you eat this bread. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, what are you doing? What are we doing in just a few moments? It's a beautiful sign and a symbol. 
We're preaching the gospel to ourselves. Christ is merciful that Christ died for sinners. Now, we will pray, we will read a scripture, we'll pray again and read another scripture and then sing a song and go home. But don't think that this is just a tacked on part of our service. Our service has been building to this symbol of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that we come to you now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we have, we've already come to you in the name of Jesus. And I thank you that we have now an opportunity to see the gospel. To see the implications of the fact that we could never do anything to in any way earn our place with you. Jesus did it all. He died on the cross for sinners like us. And through repentance and gift, and even those are, those are by God, repentance and faith, we come into the knowledge of the sacrifice of Christ for us. We believe and we were born again into your kingdom. And so we keep this symbol as a, a picture of what you did through Christ on the cross. But I also pray now that if there is anyone who is here who is not savingly joined to Christ, they know that they have not repented and turned away from sin, to turn and embrace Jesus Christ, follow Him, obey Him, love Him, that today would be a day of salvation. I pray that as your word says, that there would be no one who is not a Christian who takes the Lord's Supper, knowing that as the Apostle Paul said, they would be drinking condemnation unto themselves. That they would observe and they would hear the gospel and they would respond to the gospel. And even if today they receive that gospel message, then they can take this beautiful picture that we're going to partake of in just a moment. So I thank you for that. And I pray this in Jesus' name.